Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to um, a bonus episode as we continue our summer hiatus on the podcast. Today, I'm bringing you, it's, it's a new episode from my new podcast series I started almost a year ago called My Favorite Mistake. This is an episode uh, with a person and a voice you will possibly recognize from past episodes of this Lean podcast. And he is David Meyer. He is the co-author of two books with Jeffrey Liker. He's the co-author of the Toyota Way Field Book and Toyota Talent. Um, after retiring from Toyota or leaving Toyota, he became a consultant and has done work with TPS and Lean around the world. But a couple years ago, he started a really nice distillery in Kentucky called Glens Creek Distillery. So if you want to go back and hear old episodes with David in this podcast series, you can go to leancast.org or go all the way back um, in your podcast app here. He was my guest in episode 17, talking about Lean in China, episode 31 and 35, talking about the book Toyota Talent, Uh, episode 85, talking about some of the challenges that Toyota was facing at the time. And then we did episodes 304 and 309. 304 is, again, talking about the lessons he learned from Toyota. Episode 309, we get into his work uh, distilling bourbon. How is he integrating lean concepts into that environment that does not build cars? So in today's episode, um, he shares a favorite mistake story from his time at Toyota. David talks about Uh, kind of creating a culture where um, it's safe to bring up mistakes and to focus on problem solving, to be hard on the process, not on the people. So he he, uh, shares those Toyota stories and thoughts. And then he talks about some mistakes made in the process of distilling. So um, if you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe to My Favorite Mistake. Not all of the guests are uh, lean folks, but some of them are. And I get to interview people from all kinds of other interesting industries and lines of work. So you can learn more at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com or whatever app you're listening to this. Um, Do a search for My Favorite Mistake. You'll find it. I hope you'll listen. I hope you will enjoy it. Now, thanks. Here is the My Favorite Mistake episode with David. Episode 94, David Meyer, founder of Glens Creek Distillery. Something that's hard for for people to do sometimes to admit that they're human uh, and and that they can make mistakes. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For links, show notes, and more, go to markgraben.com slash mistake94. Please follow, rate, and review. If you like the episode, please share it with somebody. Share it with your colleagues and connections on social media. Thanks. And we're joined today by David Meyer. Uh, David's a friend of mine. We've known each other for what, maybe 15 years or so when we cross yeah, paths? Probably, yeah. Yeah, so we've crossed paths in working uh, work circles, um, 
in what I would call my day job, maybe your your previous job or or would you still call that type of work that we've done the day job or is that behind you now? No, I still do a bit of the consulting when things come along. So let me give a little bit more formal introduction to uh, to, to David Meyer. Um, we crossed paths after he had a, a very interesting career at Toyota. Um, he has then worked as a, a consultant doing similar types of work uh, to, to what I do. And he's also co-author of uh, two really excellent books. One is called The Toyota Way Field Book, and the other one is called Toyota Talent. And more recently, and this is of uh, you know particular interest of mine, um, David has started, he's the founder of Glens Creek Distillery in Kentucky. And I've had a chance to visit the distillery twice, and I enjoy um, his his products very much. And I'm going to give um, uh, congratulations and a shout out to you that um, David has gotten um, really nice acclaim in uh, the Jim Murray 2021 Whiskey Bible. So David, congratulations uh, for, for that recognition. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I, I just actually saw that uh, recently myself. So that was nice. And uh, Mr. Murray visited the distillery a couple of years ago. So it's kind of a good experience. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come back and um, you know talk a little bit more about the distillery and the whiskey. But I think we're going to talk first about your experiences at Toyota. And you know, regular listeners will realize we're going to deviate from the standard a little bit here. Normally, we jump right into the favorite mistake question. But but David's going to first tell us a little bit more um, about some of the background of what he learned working at Toyota. Yeah, you know, when I first saw your uh, blog and. Uh, really, really appreciated the idea of being able to talk about mistakes because it's uh, something that's hard for, for people to do sometimes to admit that they're human uh, and, and that they can make mistakes. And, you know, when I started at Toyota, I was, I was 27 and I was put into a, a leadership role there and I'd had some leadership experience in the past, but, but certainly not, not very much. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I found frustrating and kind of made me angry was that when my people would make mistakes, you know, the, the blame, it felt like you know, came down on me and, um, you know, Toyota operates a, a no fault, no blame culture. Um, but we are brought up, you know, you listen to any two-year-old kid and, and they say, it's not my fault. He did it. And, you know, we're, we're, we're brought up with this idea of, uh, Know, find fault and, and place blame and and uh, and there's a difference between that and being responsible you know Toyota teaches that the leader's responsibility is to to uh, develop and create uh, processes and systems that allow people to do their best work and um, but but certainly it was hard for me in the beginning um, with that situation and and as time went on I I got to understand the difference between, you know, responsibility for something and, and fault or blame about something. And, um, certainly, certainly when you, when you make a mistake, uh, you, you have the responsibility for that uh, mistake and, uh, and it's expected at Toyota then that you're also going to propose, you know, some corrective action or something to help prevent that mistake from occurring again. Yeah. So there's learning that takes place then. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, I, I used to, when, when, 
one of my people would make a mistake. You know, I would, uh, I'd go out to the process area and I'd look at the situation and, and, uh, honestly, I, I think sometimes, well, how, how stupid could, could they be that they don't understand the correct way to do this? And it, it took me a while, uh, a couple of years actually to, to be able to kind of clear my brain of any four thoughts about the situation and then look at it from a, a novice's point of view, if you will, and say, okay, if I didn't understand this system, and since I was the one who designed it, clearly I understood it. And if I didn't have that understanding, is it actually that clear to others? And, uh, you know, of course the answer is no, not really. And so you have to understand that, that, uh, you know, when people make mistakes, uh, it's not intentional and it's called a mistake. Right. And, um, so, so, you know, that, that really, uh, changed for me. And, you know, at the distillery now, when, when we have a new hire or something, I just tell him, I said, look, you can't really make a mistake that hasn't been made here already. <laughs> you know, we've, we've done this, we've screwed up that, you know, we've, we've done this kind of thing. And so you're not going to, uh, you're not going to come up with something uh, new. Now, every now and then they surprise me and come up with something that hasn't happened, but yeah. you know, everybody goes through this kind of a similar um, learning process and, and uh, certain things happen. He's, you know, Hey, uh, we don't want to, we don't want to let any distillate go on the floor, but sometimes it does. That's sad. So um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit, David, um, you know, cause you, you hear things like, um, is variations on these expressions. Be hard on the process, not on the people. And this idea of not blaming the frontline workers. Um, at what point is a frontline supervisor, a frontline leader, um, responsible versus also being part of the system? Yeah, that's that. That's exactly what I was struggling with. You know, initially is the idea that you have responsibility for process improvement or, or developing people. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I don't know, it, it takes a while because the way we're brought up, I mean, we're brought up with this mindset and, and all of a sudden you're placed in this different situation. And uh, when you're being sort of, scolded in a way for what occurred um but not blamed i mean it's it's a strange thing to adapt to really and uh it's just clear that okay you have a responsibility and responsibility your responsibility is to ensure these things and to to do these things and to follow through on these things and uh that's not a criticism per se that's an expectation Right. And, and another thing, you know, Toyota has, has the process or, you know, out there we have error proofing or mistake proofing, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, I, I always tell people, I said, there, there's no such thing. I, I listened to your podcast about almost losing those, those, uh, uh, podcast recordings. And, um, you, you talked about, you know, backup and so on and so on. And, and, at one point you, you kind of said it's virtually fail safe or something to that effect. And I would say, no, 
nothing is, and you, you can acknowledge that you're going to get a solid state drive and it's certainly more robust than a, than a spinny drive, but there, there is no, there is no actual air proofing, right? In problem solving, Toyota uses the word countermeasure. You use that word countermeasure. And if you understand that term, it, it, it's, it has to be deployed continuously in order to be effective. And, and I always tell people, I say, look, for every system that you put in place, okay, if a human puts a system in place, another human can work around that system or bypass that system or shortcut that system. Right? So the idea of airproofing isn't really to eliminate the error. It's to make it more difficult to make a mistake. It's not, it's not possible to totally eliminate mistake so you might use a term like error mitigation instead yeah, of yeah yeah thing that right. sounds very absolute maybe you know there are simple cases where you can absolutely error proof something well I, I i would beg to differ on that because you can always bypass something right yeah. Yeah. If, it's, if it's possible for a human to invent it it's possible for a human to circumvent it so um yeah yeah mitigation is probably a better term and so you know, with that in mind, we have to, we do have to acknowledge that mistakes are sort of inevitable, but you can apply certain thinking to minimize them in some way. Some, in some cases, it's not possible to, to, to apply something or certainly not easy to apply something. Well, and you talk about, you use the word responsibility, a different ability word that comes to mind. I hear this way too often uh, in healthcare. It's not exclusively a healthcare thing, but it's really common in healthcare. The word accountability yeah. gets thrown around and gets weaponized. Well, we're going to hold people accountable, which is a polite way of saying we're going to blame them and we're going to punish them. So, I mean, was part of the difference at Toyota that scolding or what felt like blaming was the punishment replaced with learning and improvement? Right. Yeah, no, that's a very good point, and and that's a point that I often make. I said they they want to make accountability this way, right? Right. You need to be accountable, and I say no. Accountability goes this way, right? You need to. I need to be accountable. Can you help me be accountable? We're in this together, and if I uh, uh, agree that I'm going to uh, live a certain way or behave a certain way, and you. Uh, experience me not behaving that way, then you, you help me be accountable. Right? So, so it's, it's, I think I, I agree with you. We kind of weaponizing it the, between the words means, yes, we're, we're going to, and here, fill out this paper to agree that you understand this situation so that if you fail to do this, then we can punish you. And, and get yeah. What you yeah. And, and the word accountability, I mean, going back to the root words, and I mean, it means basically to give account, which is about explaining, right? which is different than, I think, a notion of responsibility. And, like, you know, that root of accountability doesn't really, it wasn't meant to imply blame and punishment. Right. You can explain what happened. That's a healthy thing to figure out, right? Right. Yeah. So, um. And, you know, so you mentioned the episode where I almost lost, where we talked about Jamie Parker interviewed me about the episodes I almost lost. That was episode 16 right. uh, for people who want to go back and, and listen to that. But, um, David, you mentioned the episode with um, Mr. Yoshino. 
um, Katie Anderson and uh, Mr. Yoshino. That was, my gosh, that was episode 30. Let me double check that so I don't well, make recent. I think it was, it was one of your more recent ones. It, it was recent. It, yeah, it was episode 30 for people who want to go back. Mr. Yoshino told a story about being very young early in his career at Toyota, and he made a mistake. You could call it a slip up. He basically grabbed the wrong container of something in the paint area and it caused a problem. And, you know, it sounds like that that error was too easy to make. So, you know, what was your reaction to that story and some of that? Well, that that's, that's exactly when when I decided to reach out to you, because my mistake is very similar to that one. Um, and, uh, I, I related to it quite well when he started talking about that. I said, Oh yeah, uh uh-huh. Been there, done that. Um, so I think I'll just, I'll just launch into it uh, for you. And, you know, the, the first thing is this wasn't really my mistake. And one of the things I try to explain to people is that at at Toyota or, or, or just like your explanation of Swiss cheese. Okay. A lot of things have to line up sometimes for, for the quote mistake to actually occur. Right. And, and all those things, if, if, if all of them don't line up, then the mistake didn't happen, but you you maybe had a near miss as you sort of described. Um, And this, this is really one of those cases. So uh, this was about, I think four to five years into my uh, Toyota experience. So, so we weren't exactly newbies at that point. Um, and uh, in one, one morning, the, my team leader came up to me, and I could see just kind of white-faced, something wasn't right. And he says, uh, you know, the bumper core process uh, is powder. And I'm just looking at him and thinking to myself, powder? This is, this is supposed to be... Uh, the energy absorber, they called it in the vehicles back then, it was a polyurethane uh, hard uh, foam piece. I mean, not powder, right? Not. And so, so I walked over there with him and, and take a look at the situation. And, and it's like, you know, sometimes you experience something that is so far beyond your uh, realm of experience that you just can't process it. I mean, there's, there's, there would be nothing like this, the typical defects that we experience, you know, that you deal with kind of day in and day out. Uh, this was so far out of that realm that it just, you know, totally blank. So, so at, at Toyota, you, you understand some things. And one of those things is you have about an hour's worth of work and process inventory between you and the next process. And that case bumper paint and bumper paint has about an hour's worth of inventory between them and the assembly line. So you got about two hours before everything stops. Uh, so that's that's number one. So so you immediately call the managers and the maintenance and the engineers and everybody to to come down to the to the problem area, and um, and and again, you know, in, in retrospect and looking back on it, I think uh, sometimes you, you're experiencing something again that's so far beyond the realm of of your possibilities that you just don't know what to do. But, you know, everybody puts their heads together and says, OK, let's let's take this action We're, we'll drain the chemical system and we'll refill the system and we'll start from scratch and, and we'll see how it goes. So, 
you know, this process alone to, to drain the system, you're talking an hour or so. We've never done it before. It's, it's never had to happen. So we don't really know. And then you got to fill it up and then the chemicals have to blend and so, so on and so on. So, so, you know, you're, you're two, three hours into this thing before you can even have an effective chance at a countermeasure. And, and to make matters worse, once you, once you pour these parts into the mold, it goes through a heating cycle that takes about 11 minutes. And I would say it's, it's like when the astronauts go to the other side of the moon, you're waiting, right? You're sitting there waiting, hoping and praying that these parts are going to be okay after all this, all this work. And, and the mold comes around, opens up and powder again. I mean, just crumbly powder. So uh, we're all scratching heads. And you, and you have to understand one thing here, Mark, in addition to, those of us who had been with Toyota four years, we had a lot of seasoned Toyota veterans from Japan working with us at that point in time. I mean, 20, 30 year guys. Okay. Um, and, and nobody had experienced anything like this. And, and it was, you know, so the decision was made this time and maybe the automated system was messed up somehow and it wasn't putting in the right material and so on and so on. And so let's drain it all down and then we'll refill it manually, which again, it, never actually been done. So we got to get the manual out and figure out how to actually make that happen. So, you know, several more hours goes by and, um, it, this, this happened to me more than one, one occasion at Toyota where, where the process really was down for quite a long time. And, you know, it's kind of, I, I'd say you look up and all of a sudden there's 25 people from all over the plant, every manager from every department comes because they all want to know, you know, what are we going to do with our people? What should, what, you know, how long might this take? And everybody kind of comes together. Uh, and so I say you have 25 new friends that you didn't know about <laughs> yeah. before. Um, so anyway, go through this whole process of redoing it all manually and, and same thing, you know, put it in the mold, goes around the oven, 11 minutes, you're waiting, waiting. And then uh, you know, mold opens up powder. Yeah. Yuck. Okay. Yeah. So now we're, I don't know, six hours into this, seven hours into this. And, and everybody understands when you, when the line stops, it's everybody understands the significance of that. Right. Uh, and, and everybody's doing their best to try to, to get, get it resolved. So at, at that point, you know, people are kind of wandering around and looking and trying to think what else could it be? What else could it be? And, uh, off to the side is my recollection is off to the side. I hear somebody saying, what, what do you do with methylene chloride? Hmm. My ears perk up. Right. Hmm. And I'm like, do what now? Now I was familiar with methylene chloride because of my previous job, I worked as a safety coordinator and I had to deal hmm. with the chemicals and so forth. But we had no use for those in the plastics department. Ah. Right. There's yeah. No methylene chloride was needed anywhere that we did. So I, I immediately went over to where he was. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, this drum here says methylene chloride on it. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, oh, my gosh. We're putting a solvent in where we were supposed to be putting a catalyst in. Yeah. Okay. So instead of solidifying the material, it was degrading the material. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so when you, you know, when you analyze that at the end and we had to do an analysis and we had to do a problem solving and Mr. Cho, our president basically asked one question, what did we learn today? Mm. And, uh, 
the, the thing about it is, Mark, the, the mistakes, the mistakes that led to the line stop, the downtime, weren't actually the big mistake. The, the big mistake, which took me about 10 years of reflection to, to understand, was what took us so long to figure out what caused the issue. Mm-hmm. See, it was seven hours in and we missed, uh, we missed one of the most fundamental lessons when a problem occurs or when a mistake happens. One of the fundamental lessons, which, which we had been taught over and over and over at Toyota. Now, to analyze the mistake, what happened? Well, you could do a five whys and say, well, somebody put the wrong material in the system. Why? Because the wrong material was delivered. Why? Because it was in the wrong location. You know, who knows? It could have been it could have been a mistake on the uh, shipping and bill of lading or where they stored it at oil stores. The drum was the same color, the same size and the same manufacturer. Yeah. So, so we know things like expectation bias get in the way, right? We, it looks normal. This, this sounds like some medication errors. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Same, same. Same kind of thing, right? It looks normal. It doesn't look out of place. And, and so we literally walked by it all day long and failed. And again, it took me a long time to re- really understand where we failed and the thing about it is, Mark, in that case, all of us there failed in the same way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm not talking two or three people. I'm talking 20 people, 25 people. Okay. Very experienced people who, you know, should know better. And the failure was we didn't verify the standard. We didn't, nobody thought to say, hey, let's go and check all the chemicals that we're putting in the system, or hey, let's switch them all out and put a fresh batch in, right? The, 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 this, the feeling we got latched into, and this happens, happens a lot too, uh, where you, you latch into one possibility and it must be the blending system. It wasn't about what we put in the system, it was about the system itself. I mean, that seems like that's a, form of cognitive bias. I've, I've heard others talk about um, the first solution that people come up with, we tend to lock in or gravitate too strongly toward that one. Even if we're trying to brainstorm multiple possibilities, I think our brain tends to stick with uh, the first one, which, um, yeah, that's at our own risk, I guess. Yeah, it, it is. It's extremely common. And, um, you know, particularly, I think, in, again, in that scenario where we were faced with a situation that was so far beyond anything that we could imagine as, as a cause. And, you know, with your everyday defects or everyday situations that you've kind of dealt with before, and you kind of go back to uh, what, you know, in this case, it was, it was, you know, too far out there. And I think, um, you know, as I recall, there was a li- you know there was a, a, a list drawn out about what you know what could be going on and, and so forth. But but the, you know, the, the the blending system was focused on, and we didn't we didn't go and look and see what all the materials were. Were they the correct materials? I mean, that's a fundamental thing. Step number one is confirm 
uh, that what you're dealing with is what it's supposed to be. But th there might have been a bias or an assumption where people might have thought such a fundamental error like that wasn't going to happen. It must be something really complicated instead of being something really simple. Well, yeah, that's a possibility as well. And, and again, you know, looking visually, I mean, literally looking, uh, that drum was the same color, the same size, the same manufacturer, you know, from several feet away. It didn't look out of place. It didn't look abnormal. It didn't look like something was wrong. And uh, but still, you know, the 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 idea when I when I it finally occurred to me that uh, we all fundamentally fail to do the most basic thing, which is confirm. And, um, you know, expectation bias or confirmation bias, you're absolutely right. Those are, those are things that often get in our way when we're trying to resolve a situation or we're trying to, um, or, or avoid mistakes. I mean, a lot of mistakes um, in healthcare, it's common. Uh, expectation bias says, oh, I'm working with Mark and Mark's a really good guy and I trust Mark. So I don't need to double check Mark on what Mark did because he's a good guy. And uh, so, so it's a very common uh, phenomenon, I think, in, in the realm of making mistakes. Yeah. So you mentioned it took quite a long time for this to really kind of um, come together in your mind. What, what triggered that learning or that, that recognition of, like for one, the memory of that and then the recognition of um, the mistake within trying to figure out the mistake? Well, you know, the, what I call the bigger mistake, because um, if we had done, if we had checked and confirmed things, we could have resolved it within the first effort and drain the system because clearly it had contamination in it, uh, refill it with the correct things and, and probably be back to normal uh, much, much sooner, hours, hours and hours sooner. Um, and um, I think you know, back then, certainly I was not as experienced as I am now or, or became later when I finally understood it. Uh, you know, we sat down and we did what people do with problem solving. Well, why did the wrong material end up in the in that place? And what mistake was that? And what can we do to, to make sure that mistake doesn't happen again? And I, I don't think anybody ever asked the question to say, uh, but I learned this later, is to say, how can we resolve problems more quickly? How can we get to uh, effective countermeasures uh, faster so that we don't experience the length of downtime? We focused on how, you know, the, the mistake, which was putting the wrong chemical in the wrong place. Well, and, and many organizations would have gone down the path of who put the wrong chemical into yep. the machine and uh, might go down that path of, well, we're going to write them up or punish them or, you know, right. uh, and, 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 and that doesn't, I, you know, it's, that's not as effective of a path to learning and improvement and, and ultimately right. success for the team or the plant or the company. Right. We, we did not have a process in place that said to the operator, verify the chemical before you stick the hose in it. Right. And that was one of the corrective actions that, that took place. Um, and, and I think to make matters worse, that the individual who actually did it was a temporary. Mm -hmm. Okay, summer. It, it was summertime, and we would hire uh, children of workers from college or whatever to come and, and 
fill some jobs in the summer. Um, but but look, it it was the Swiss cheese. It wasn't it wasn't the final act of putting it in? Certainly, it was also the delivery of the wrong thing. And it was also the pickup of the wrong thing, and and who, who knows how far back the the series of mistakes actually went. Yeah, yeah. but then, like you were saying earlier, um, uh, you know, error mitigation, or it might be very imperfect, or people can work around a system, or you know, if if, if it's dependent on someone double checking the chemical, they might forget, or you know, they mm-hmm. might be distracted, or there might, might be, be some other um, human factor that um, that gets in the way. Well, yeah, and and just like in any good system, like in aerospace or whatever, the more critical it is, the more redundancies you you want to have. And and we had multiple redundancies, and they went back all the way to oil stores, which is where the chemicals were received in the, in the plant and then delivered to us. And the person who set it there had to had to confirm it. The person who was to put it in the machine had to confirm it. And so, uh, you know, and and I believe as if I recall, we actually got the supplier to change the color of the drum so that it you know, didn't match methylene chloride or, or whatever. So, I mean, all of those countermeasures were, were fine. But, you know, again, later I realized, wait a minute, why did we fail at, the, at this fundamental lesson that says when something isn't working right, go back and verify the conditions or the parameters or, or whatever, you know, ver- verify the standard uh, first thing. And if you find something that's out of standard, you put that back in standard and go from there. Um, and and it's kind of surprising, like I said, because there were so many people involved who all sort of fell into the same trap. Well, and um, you know, so I appreciate you sharing that story and and you know the broader reflections from Toyota. Um, I want to bring the conversation back to um, Glens Creek Distillery and the work that you've been doing there and. Um, I'll put in the show notes, you know, David and I have done um, uh, interviews in uh, my lean podcast series where we take a real deep dive into what he's doing there. And, and I'll, um, I'll point to that. But um, one thing I was going to ask, I mean, the thing that comes to mind, I don't know if this was a, a mistake or a discovery, and maybe this is urban legend, but the idea that uh, bourbon was transported down the Mississippi River and it was put into um, oak barrels for the purposes of transportation. And then it was discovered that that time spent in the oak barrel changed the whiskey, taking it from a, you know, a clear distillate to something with more flavors and, and, and color. Um, I mean, you know, that, that could have been framed um, whether that story is true or not exactly, you know, what, what might've been a mistake in transportation, like, well, they, 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 didn't use an inert stainless steel container if that even existed at the time, but my quote unquote mistake actually led to the creation of a lot of value through that, that learning and that discovery. Well, you know, I I'd go way back in human history, Mark, and say that mistakes or or things, you know, whatever you want to call it led to a lot of uh, new things. So my guess is that humans discovered that uh, sprouted seeds fermented. And that's because this uh, sprouting of the seed releases enzymes that, that then convert starch in the seeds into fermentable sugars. And to, to discover that, you probably had sacks of grain that got wet accidentally and then 
sprouted and, and started fermenting. And then you saw animals eating that fermented <laughs> stuff and having a great time. And you put two and two together and say, Hey, let's do this. Yeah. Um, but, but I think the story you're referring to is more urban legend. Uh, okay. I thought. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, legends like that in this industry, you know, who's the first distiller who first did this and that. In fact, uh, liquids were stored in oak containers well before uh, the United States was the United States. And if you look at it, you know, if you see any of these old shows or whatever, of course, you're going to see wooden barrels all over the place because that was the way everything was transported. Not only did they not have stainless steel, they didn't have plastic, they didn't have cardboard, and they didn't have any, you know. And so you had basically you had two different kinds of barrels. You had dry goods barrels that didn't have to hold liquid and you had uh, liquid type barrels. And uh, so anything liquid, wine, uh, honey, molasses, molasses, whiskey would have been transported, you know, in a barrel. I think the, uh, the difference was barrel barrels for wine, for example, are typically toasted but not charred, and so the charring process uh, lends a lot to uh, the bourbon. It gives it a more amberish color and and uh, certainly some smoky flavors, perhaps, and, and so yeah. on. So um, that legend, of course, can't be validated either. That Elijah Craig, you know, was a tightwad and and he had a, a pickle barrel or, or you know sardine barrel or something that liquid and he wanted to reuse it so in order to get rid of the flavor he burned burned the inside of it and uh, created good whiskey but you know it's a tall tale i think um the french as i understand it were were charring barrels and storing whiskey in barrels years before yeah so yeah and then uh Scottish listeners may claim some, some, some right of first discovery uh, to some of that, but yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think they use charred barrels, but you know, humans, humans tens of thousands of years ago, the, the uh, Vikings had discovered that white oak was pretty good for making boats because it kept liquid out. And I'm sure then people realized you could use it to keep liquid in yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, maybe as a, a final question before we wrap up, can you think of an example in your distillery operations where you've got some sort of um, a, maybe not mistake proofing, but error mitigation strategy in place? You said you've made a lot of mistakes already, but what, what sort of prevention do you try to put in place? Well, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of what we do is, is sort of manual in nature. And when you have manual things, it's a little bit more challenging to put in airproofing so hmm. what i try to do in that case is is build build the step into the standard work okay so for example uh you know when you're gonna fill the still you've had to drain the still and you certainly want to make sure that the, the valve is closed now we could automate that right i could put uh, actuators in there and, and have all that automated but uh, that's expensive and um you know, it, it's an easy enough task, but it happens sometimes. But you learn to say, okay, uh, step number one, close the valve. And then step number two, when you get ready to turn on the pump to put something in the still, look over and double check the valve. And one of the things they taught us at Toyota is, is uh, Yosh, right? Y-O-S-H-I is how it's spelled, but it's pronounced Yosh. And 
basically means check, right? Confirm. And so when I train someone, I say, look, you're going to, I want you to point at that thing so that I understand that you're doing what you're thinking in your head. Because as you know, a lot of mistakes occur because our brains are, are sidetracked or on another thought or, in certain situations, you basically fall into a hypnosis because of repetition or, you know, what happens at the distillery is what we call getting squirreled, right? You're, <laughs> you're in the midst of a task and something else, ah, right. attention. you yeah. go away from the task and then you come back and, and you miss a step, right? And so at, at the end, you know, after the startup, I say, okay, double check everything, <laughs> All the way, all the way around. Um, we do have, we do have some, um, you know, more automated kind of error mitigation things, alarms, and things to tell us that something needs attention or, or, or so on. And, and we continue to try to incorporate those whenever a mistake is made. Well, and I mean, yeah, such as life, mistakes are made. Hopefully, they're not big expensive mistakes like shutting down an assembly line for a long time or dumping a barrel of, uh, of whiskey. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, what you deal with in healthcare, I tell people in healthcare, I said, you, you're, if somebody makes mistakes, your consequences are huge. I mean, that situation at Toyota roughly was about $8.3 million uh, loss, but a loss of a life is worse, you know, and, and the consequences are more severe in those cases, you have to be even more diligent about about applying some thinking to to minimize the possibility of mistakes to, to mitigate. And um, you know, it, it's it's part it is part of life. Unfortunately, it is part of being being human. And um, you know, we know we can look at all kinds of situations where there were redundancies in place, and the and the outcome still occurred. And um, I think you're you hit it on the head. It's 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 ineffective to to punish somebody for failing because we all fail. Mm -hmm. Right now, with that being said, of course we talk about this a lot, and, and certainly people in the audience always raise their hands and say, "Well, sometimes people are responsible. Sometimes they need to be punished. Sometimes blah blah." blah. I said, "Look, if if I look at a person and they make some significant amount of mistakes more than somebody else." Okay, outside some normal range, then maybe that person isn't fit for the work that they're doing, and maybe they need to do something else. Right? Uh, at Toyota, the, the idea was if if you make a mistake or something, I'm going to ask you what you think about that and how you can minimize that and, and you know, what was going on in your head at the time, and uh, what kind of things can we do to try to uh, minimize that from happening? You know, I had, had worked with one guy one time and this was after Toyota when I was consulting as a manager. And he, he had this fundamental belief that if people had to fix their own mistakes, why they wouldn't make that mistake again. Mm. And I said, okay, they might not, but what about the next guy? What about the next person who comes into that position? Yeah. How's that thinking changing anything? All you're doing is saying, well, you fix your own mistakes. You won't do that again. I mean, it's, it, that sounds like the equivalent of putting a dog's nose down and uh, yeah. poop on the floor. Right. I don't know if that's really effective. No. It might not. feel like it's doing something. You might feel better, but no. Well, you see, and, and I'll come full circle, that 
those are the same kind of things that I had to adapt to and understand and come to terms with my own self. I mean, I certainly had those urges as well, you know, to, to punish or to, you know, retribution or some, something. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's sort of embedded us in us. It's, it's around us. It's in our culture. It's, you know, arguably that blaming is human nature. Kind of. Yeah. I think you, so. you can go back to, um, the story of, uh, Coco who passed away, I think, a year or two ago, there was a, a gorilla that trainers, researchers yeah. taught American Sign Language. And there's a famous story about Coco where po- Coco had a real live pet kitten. Yeah. Loved it and took care of it. And there was some day when um, the hand, I don't know if the, the right word is, we'll say researchers, came back in and there was a sink fixture that had been torn out of the wall. Well, there's only one explanation for what happened, I guess. And they asked Coco what happened. And the story goes that Coco said in sign language, cat did it. <laughs> and yeah. so, I mean, that's what I'm saying. There's, we're, there's somehow, we're somehow wired. It must be an evolutionary, yeah. evolutionary survival tool. If you can pin blame on someone else and somehow survive your, your genes carry forward. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think you're right. But we do the best we can to create cultures where, you know, we're focused on um, fixing the process instead of blaming people. And, and to me, that's one of the lessons that um, I'm fortunate to have learned from, you know, the former Toyota people I've worked with and been mentored by and through my own work and experience. But it's it like a lot of things, it's a hard habit to break. Yes. So, um, well, maybe I'm going to go pour some of your whiskey. That's a habit that, uh, I think is, is one I'm not trying to break. Uh, it's a, it's a good one. David's uh, products are, you know, produced at uh, Glens Creek distillery and the website there is Glens Creek distillery.com. Um, for people who are looking to possibly buy and uh, try your whiskeys, can you tell a little bit, tell people a little bit about the distribution and, and what parts of the country they might be able to find you? Well, first of all, don't blame me that we can't ship. Okay. I, I don't make the laws. I just yeah. have to follow the laws and people misunderstand those all the time. Um, but distribution is, you know, we're, we're small, but we're in four states, Kentucky, Tennessee, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And uh, I know it's not enough yet. And we get requests all of, uh, from people all over the place for them. We're doing the best we can. We've grown and, and we've expanded uh, production and uh, we had, well, I guess we turned one happy mistake into something. We, we, uh, we ran out of rye uh, once, our, one of our secondary grains, and uh, John asked the question, what would happen if we made 100% corn bourbon? Hmm. And uh, usually I say, I don't know, let's see, let's try, let's do an experiment. Yeah. So we have a, a currently a, a, what we call cob corn-only bourbon that, that is aging, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to release that shortly, but born out of a kind of a, kind of a mistake. Oh, interesting. So when things get back to normal and when I'm in that part of the country, I'm going to come see you again and uh, hopefully get to pick some of that up and try it. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad that uh, Jim Murray really liked in particular, I think, you know, uh, my, my favorite of of your whiskeys is the cafe Olay product. Now that was intentional. That was not a mistake, right? Correct. Yeah. That was intentional. Yeah. Uh, it, It turned out great. So 
Um, well, our, our guest, and I think this episode's turned out great. So thank you for that, David. Our guest thank has you. been um, David Meyer, his uh, books, um, which I, I really like a lot as well. The Toyota Way Field Book and um, the other book, Toyota Talent, um, co-authored with Jeffrey Liker. And again, it's Glens Creek Distillery. So someone could combine the two, pour, do a pour of whiskey, sit down with a book next to the fire, read and learn and uh, have a sip and reflect. So David, thank you for kind of helping us combine those worlds a little bit in the discussion here today. All right, Mark, always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to David Meyer for being our guest today. To learn more about him, about his distillery and his books and more, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake94. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.